In this uh, last discourse that I was reading and explaining took us all the way to the moment of entering the path and gaining the fruit from it, the moment of liberation. And the next one, which is quite um, short, but I think I explained to you that this is a collection of different discourses all about in and out breathing, the whole stack of them that are collected together. And each one in, them in itself is fairly brief. So the first one is finished, and now comes the next one. And the next one should be translated as factors of enlightenment. It's translated as limb of wisdom. So one really has to know what one is reading because the translations, as I said, this one was translated in 1930. And since then, the uh, scholars have um, made a more consolidated uh, translation so that we have the same words. So anyway, the limbs of wisdom are the factors of enlightenment. In Pali, they're the bojangas, and the janga is a limb. This is a janga, is a limb. So in those days, it was still translated as limbs of wisdom. Bo is the syllable for enlightenment, the bow tree, the bodhi tree. So both is the enlightenment, so it's the factors of enlightenment. And this is um, very fitting following the other one because this tells the seven factors of enlightenment which need to be perfected so that one can actually do what was described in the previous one, come to cessation. The past moment is one moment of cessation. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was staying near Savati at the Jaita Grove in Anathapindika's park, and then the Buddha addressed the monks. Monks, concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing, if cultivated and made much of, is of great fruit, of great profit. How cultivated? Under this dispensation, a person cultivates the factors of enlightenment, which is mindfulness accompanied by concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing. Now, the first factor of the seven factors of enlightenment is always mindfulness. But here, it is described in a little different way. It is mindfulness accompanied by concentration on in and out breathing. In other words, it's anapanasati. It's mindfulness on the in-breath and the out-breath. And mindfulness brought to such an one-pointedness that it is concentration. Because mindfulness does not necessarily have to be real concentration, it may just be knowing what's going on. It's, but here, 
the word concentration is used specially because these are two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path and not one. The three factors of the concentration part of the Noble Eightfold Path are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So mindfulness and concentration are not the same thing, but mindfulness leads to concentration. So here it's supposed to be co-joined. Mindfulness co-joined with concentration. And mindfulness co-joined with concentration on in and out breathing. Buddha does not speak in this particular sutta about general mindfulness. As the first factor of enlightenment is the mindfulness co-joined with concentration on in and out breathing. Which tends to seclusion, to dispassion, to cessation that ends in self-surrender. Well, the first word is seclusion. Now, usually misunderstood, as it's so easy to misunderstand these sutras, and the best of us have misunderstood them. Seclusion means nothing but seclusion from sensual desire and sensual contact. If one is mindful and concentrated, Sensual desire has absolutely no room in there. There is nothing left for sensual desire. Now the word seclusion obviously is usually understood. One has to go off somewhere and sit in a cave or uh, go down to, you know, amongst the trees and see nothing, hear nothing, which is very nice. But it isn't what's meant. What's meant is the seclusion from sensual desire. Obviously, mindfulness and concentration by their nature already are secluded from sensual desire. But that has to be specially named again and usually is named because it means the beginning of the jhanas. And the jhanas are factors of enlightenment as we'll see in a minute. The word concentration is one of the factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness is one, concentration is one. Buddha puts them both together here that they have to be co-joined. And the seclusion from sensual desire means that one goes into the jhanas. And then we come to the, what we have already discussed in the previous sutta, the dispassion, which is the springboard for enlightenment, to cessation. And the next few words are the significant ones that ends in self-surrender. I think it says everything. I don't know whether there's anything to be explained. Surrender self. Give it up completely and utterly. But before anybody can do that, one's got to be able to give up one's own viewpoint and opinion. Without that, it just doesn't work. As long as one is riding around, like on a little hobby horse, on one's own opinions and viewpoints, one hasn't got a chance. Not a chance. One may be able to meditate, up to a point, mind you, but one can't do anything more. Because the self is the one that rides the hobby horse. 
I know, I believe, I've heard, I understand, and so on and so forth. So with that rider sitting there, we can't surrender. So the first thing we need to surrender is own personal views and personal opinions, which have been heard, uh, misunderstood, understood, and all the rest of it, because they're based on me. Now, self-surrender, of course, is more than giving up views and opinions. But as long as we haven't done that, we can't surrender anything. Because we're not even surrendering to the possibility that we could just barely be wrong. That possibility always exists. But if we have our own views and opinions, we can't surrender to that. So surrender is actually a word which has such significance in this um, dispensation in the understanding of the self-delusion. The delusion of self is a hanging on and holding on and knowing and wanting and becoming and having been and all the rest of it and being quite sure that one self actually knows. The surrender of that, just that first part of it, means that one allows a certain leeway, a lessening of the rigidity of self, a lessening of the solidity of self, a certain doubt creeps in. Maybe I don't know everything. Or maybe I don't even know the things I thought I did. And as one starts loosening the grip one has, then one can, with the impermanence factor constantly being looked at, come to a different way of seeing oneself. And one of the most important aspects, which probably helps people most, is to understand Dukkha. Now, I've already many times talked about it, what Dukkha is and what it means. But if we can see it in ourselves and don't blame anything outside of ourselves, it just is. We've got it. And we don't anymore try to fix it into a certain point because somebody said something, because somebody did something, because somebody did not do something, because somebody did not say something. None of that has anything to do with Dukkha. Dukkha is the fact that I explained yesterday, that nothing can give total satisfaction. And because we haven't seen it, we want to find something that's at fault. It must be this microphone, that's why I'm having Dukkha not working properly or something. I mean, it's a totally absurd idea, but we, or it must be because somebody is not acting the way they ought to. That's why I'm having Dukkha. One has Dukkha because Dukkha is. And as one sees it arising within, through every movement that comes in mind and in body also, then there can come 
that real determination or that real knowing that there's nothing else that will actually alleviate and finally eliminate dukkha except surrendering this self that we're carrying around as a great burden and which we're constantly hanging on to trying to make it look better. If we just give it up, we don't have to make it look at like anything. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't exist. It doesn't have to be clever. It doesn't have to be handsome or beautiful. It doesn't have to be young. It doesn't have to know anything. It just doesn't exist. And when it doesn't have to be clever or beautiful or rich or whatever it should be anymore, can you imagine the relief? It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't exist. They just give it up, and that's it. Well, what do we what we do? We give up. We give up the idea. And this is probably um, a way of description. And there are many ways of saying the same thing, which has its very significant way of saying it: the self surrender, surrendering this package that we've been hanging on to, which is called me, and which has all these different connotations and identifies with all sorts of things, with one's um, um, family, identifies with one's age, with one's uh, occupation, with one's uh, skills, all these identifications. And because these things make me, all these identifications have to be something very good. If they aren't, then I'm no good. So my skills have to be very good, my looks have to be very good, my understanding has to be very good, my family has to be very good. What a bother. Not only that, it's impossible to comply with. Nobody can make it happen. Nothing always looks good. So that's self-surrender. And this is what, of course, the factors of enlightenment are supposed to do when we have perfected them or have worked on them long enough so that we can come to that moment of self-surrender. So here we are faced with two factors of enlightenment already. Mindfulness is the first one and concentration is another one of the factors of enlightenment. And the seclusion is the step into the jhanas and then arises dispassion, cessation, and the end is self-surrender. One must be willing to give oneself up completely. Now, the next um, factor (laughs) is called the norm investigation. Well, it means the investigation into dhammas. And that is actually the second factor of enlightenment. And this investigation into dhammas is the often translated in two ways but I think I'll just use the one that I understand to be correct. Dhammas means phenomena and so it's a word that means many things in Pali but here it means phenomena and it means that we do not cease to investigate anicca dukkanata we pick the one we like best impermanence, dukkha, or substancelessness, corelessness. Now, 
sometimes we start investigating one and then go to another one. That's fine. No, it doesn't matter. Sometimes we are more inclined to look at dukkha and see it more clearly. Other times we are a little sick and tired of dukkha and we'd like to look rather at impermanence. That's fine too. It doesn't matter. The full penetration of one brings one to the full penetration of all three. But one of the pitfalls is to superficially agree to the fact that everything is impermanent and then go on to the next discursive thought. The investigation means to really be like a detective and find out all the clues that this that we can find about let's say impermanence how it pervades us and everything else how we are pervaded by it how the universe is pervaded by it and see the clues look for them not to superficially agree it's very difficult to disagree and not to be afraid to find the truth. As I said yesterday, and I like to repeat that, there is that one point in the practice where people shy back from going further because they have the mistaken idea that now might be the time when they're going to lose self, ego. It's going to get lost and all the pleasures of life are going to be lost because I am the one that's having them. This is not an unusual moment in people's practice. It's the one that sometimes is terror but very often just ordinary fear of going further. This is the time when the mind becomes looks for things in the teaching or in the teacher that could be objected to. Something can be found. It's not difficult. The mind can find negativities wherever it looks. So that is the moment when the investigation into impermanence may be the best antidote. A real investigation. No fear. Just wanting to know the truth. Being really keen to know the truth. Not being fearful of getting too near to the truth because it might be unpleasant. How can the truth be unpleasant? The truth can only be pleasant. All spiritual masters, all people of all ages who had any religious or uh, spiritual ambitions have looked for the truth. And that moment where we are afraid of the truth, that's the time to look for impermanence. Now, when we want to know whether we are at that moment, we can investigate our own mind and see whether it is trying to find fault. Trying to find fault with the teaching trying to find fault with the teacher. That is the proof that that is where we're at.
at that moment where we don't want to go any further. Now, obviously, the mind doesn't say, I'm trying to find fault. The mind says, I have found fault. That is the moment when we can see that this is our block, the blockage there. And then it takes courage to admit that to oneself. This whole path takes courage. It's totally opposite to what everybody else is doing. And in the end, it's completely opposite, but then it doesn't matter anymore. So, courage is needed there. This is an investigation into, let's say, impermanence. It can be either one of the three, which goes on in the mind quite automatic in order to gain insight, to find the truth. Anyone who goes on a spiritual path must be going on that in order to find truth. Now, obviously, that may not be one's first consideration. One may have come because one had so much dukkha, couldn't find anything else to do. That's also okay. It doesn't matter why one comes. But eventually, having been on the path for some time, that can be the only consideration left. I want to know the real truth. The truth which underlies all these appearances. This is what the investigation, the second factor of enlightenment, where we are really imbued with that kind of um, direction without even having to try and remember, oh yes, I'm supposed to look at impermanence, nothing like that. One looks and sees it and then looks for other clues which make it... In other words, one takes it... in instructions of the Buddha and tries to use one's intelligent mind to see its truth to actually prove to oneself that it is true now that can be quite opposed to what people are doing people often try to find that it's not true that doesn't help anybody because for that one doesn't have to practice. Not totally unnecessary. But to find, find whether it's true, that's practice. Now again, he says, he cultivates the fact of enlightenment that is the investigation into dhammas accompanied by concentration on inbreathing and outbreathing, which tends to seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and ends in self-surrender. What is being said here is quite different from what is usually in the suttas. It is really keen, keenly concerned with in and out breathing. And the in, what we're looking at here is that it is a meditative in, endeavor. It's often also the investigation into dhammas explained as something that goes on every day. But here, accompanied with concentration on in and out breathing, it becomes a meditation. And this is, obviously, an inside meditation. While we are still con concentrated on the breath, we can see the impermanence of the breath. We're not trying to become calm from that, but see the impermanence. And because it started out 
with mindfulness accompanied by concentration on in and out breathing, which brings us to a very good state of concentration. Here, this good state of concentration is already assumed so that the understanding of impermanence can be extremely deep. And it's a very good way of doing it because it is a personal experience. The breath is impermanent. And as the concentration has already come to a point, their uh, point of uh, one-pointedness, it is a deep experience. So we have three factors of enlightenment at this moment. We have the mindfulness, which is accompanied by concentration or so on, in and out breathing. We have the uh, investigation into dhammas, also accompanied by concentration on in and out breathing, and the concentration as such. Now the next one is, the next factor of enlightenment is energy. Now obviously that's mental energy. Mental energy is something that also produces physical energy. If the mind has the third hindrance, sloth, torpor, I think sloth is physical, torpor is mental, then the body is also um, sluggish. But the mind, which is quite um, alert and awake and aware and inquiring, not opinionated, not adhering to a belief system, but inquiring, that also brings about, of course, physical energy. But the main aspect of a factor of enlightenment is naturally the, the mental aspect of energy. Which means that in the concentration of the mind, the mind has to remain alert, awake, aware, energetic. Energetic means that it is interested. Energetic means that it is trying to find out. It doesn't fall into a sort of um, fog or into something which is more um, a kind of indifference. It remains interested. It wants to know the new, the really that which is new. Now, energy has to be accompanied by concentration, and this is, of course, now it's all dots, but it's what it says here, it's accompanied by concentration, because energy alone can be restless. And concentration alone can be um, become quite... Um, well, it can tend towards uh, sleepiness or trance. It doesn't have to become that. But if there's no energy in the mind, there's no um, real understanding. So we have those two always have to go together, energy and concentration. And they have to balance with each other. They mustn't go overboard, one or the other. 
And again, it says, accompanied by concentration on in and out breathing, which tends to seclusion, dispassion, cessation that ends in self-surrender. Actually, when one reads that, one would expect uh, to understand that each single one of those factors of enlightenment already are sufficient, uh, is sufficient in itself to have liberation, self-surrender. But that is not, uh, could not possibly be the case because these seven are always mentioned together. Now the next one, and now I know why they're using the word best, <laughs> it's pity. Um, the next one after energy, now we've had the first three, mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, and energy, which all tend towards concentration. They all, and they all go together with concentration. Now the next one is the first factor of the, uh, the first jhana, first jhana factor, I should say, piti, bliss, or interest, and here it's translated as vest, which is not um, totally wrong, because interest is also zestful. It has a, a kind of an energetic uh, joy in it. It's a very unusual word, which is no longer used ever as a translation. What is usually used is bliss, rapture. Uh, I like to use delight or delightful. But it also has interest in it. So from the... From these three factors, now the jhanas appear. And again, it is said here, he cultivates the factor of enlightenment that is bliss accompanied by concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing, which tends to seclusion, dispassion, cessation, ends in self-surrender. So, the... Um, the first fa- factor of the first jhana, factor of the first jhana, the, um, the blissfulness, still together with the breath, in order also, of course, to solidify it. And the next one, then, is tranquility and then concentration. Now, the, the joy is not mentioned in the factors of enlightenment, tranquility more the uh, the third one, and concentration the fourth one. So the uh, the jhana factors are here, not in exactly the same order as they are sometimes, or most of the time mentioned, but here it comes from the delight to the tranquility, the peacefulness, and then the concentration. The real concentration is considered to be the fourth jhana. That's considered to be real concentration. And, of course, the others are all accompanied by concentration, all the other factors. But this is already, now this fourth one is concentration accompanied by concentration. But, I mean, it just is concentration. The others have the, have the uh, companionship of concentration. 
Now the last one that is mentioned as the seventh on the seven factors of enlightenment may if here is equanimity. Now sometimes that is used as a factor of the fourth jhana, but as I've already explained when we were talking about the jhanas, equanimity is actually that which arises out of insight and calm, out of both. So equanimity is not exactly that what one experiences in the fourth jhana, but the fourth jhana is very often called equanimity jhana. Although it isn't that what one experiences, one gains it from that. So if we consider this to mean that this is the fourth jhana, then tranquility would be the second, concentration the third, and equanimity the fourth. But it's highly unlikely because concentration is the depth of concentration which we experience in the fourth jhana. So equanimity together with concentration on in-breathing and out-breathing which tends to seclusion, to dispassion, to cessation which ends in self-surrender. Now equanimity is the emotional state, a mental emotional state which is the hallmark of an enlightened one under all circumstances. And this therefore mostly misunderstood that an enlightened one does not react. That's of course totally absurd. The Buddha reacted just exactly the way he thought he should. But inside there is no anger, no fear, no anxiety, no greed, nothing. But when the monks and nuns behaved badly, he told them off in no uncertain terms. And when the lay people um, did not understand what he was telling them, he would also react by either repeating it and saying that he had already told them and now he's repeating it, or ask one of his enlightened monks to repeat it because he was being tired of it. And as I already mentioned, he went into the forest for three months because the monks had behaved so badly that uh, he didn't have any hope of educating them anymore. So he just went away. So it is not. Equanimity does not mean that a person does not react. That would be foolish. In fact, a person like the Buddha who was teaching for 45 years had to tell people what needed to be done and what needed to be understood. But the equanimity is that inner feeling of complete ease and security and confidence and a base inside which is unshakable. It doesn't shake. It just is. And from that base, of course, a person like the Buddha did not say to people what they might have wanted to hear, but he told them the truth. 
because there was nothing shaking in him. The confidence and the security that arises out of equanimity is, exists because of the fact that such a person knows that anger is impossible. And that whatever he did, Buddha and his enlightened disciples, was done out of compassion. So, here again, equanimity is mentioned to be together with concentration on in and out breathing, which tends to seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and self-surrender. If looked at it this way, it's a meditative state. But obviously, it is also an emotional state. It is both. It's a meditative state and an emotional state. And the emotional state is the one that arises out of common insight. What we have here are we have four of the factors which belong to the jhanas out of which one is the emotional result and three factors which out of which one is the inside part and the other two are the motors that get us there. Mindfulness and energy are the two factors which are necessary in order to get going and to keep going. Without mindfulness and without energy we can't get going, we can't keep going. And the investigation is our inside path. Whichever way we do it, there are many methods. And then the other four are the jhanas, out of which uh, the equanimity is the result from them. So we have the um, the bliss or the, the delight, the tranquility, and the concentration, and then the equanimity. So what we have here is calm and insight. As usual, there is nothing else. And we could also now maybe understand that as far as factors of the mind are concerned, there is nothing else. Whether it is taught by the Buddha or not, doesn't matter. The mind, which we consider to be a personal affair because we think we own it and we put all the stuff into it that we uh, have been carrying around is, in actual fact, part of universal consciousness. And universal consciousness being one and all minds being part of that universal consciousness, all minds do exactly the same thing. Which is the only reason why a spiritual path and meditation can be taught. Because if all, if every mind was doing its own thing as we think it does, but it doesn't, nobody could be taught a thing. Because everybody would have their own pathway. But that Fortunately, if not so, 
the pathway of the jhanas is the only pathway there is for tranquility and calm. Whether they're called jhanas or whether they're called the beautiful chambers in God's mansion or whether they're called the Godhead behind God or whatever it is that any of the mystics ever called it doesn't really matter. It's all one and the same. It's always the mind going into states of higher consciousness which are factors of enlightenment. That's the calm path. And the insight path is always the path that's searching for the most profound and absolute truth. Now there, when we look at the um, different religions, we will find totally different terminology and yet always the same understanding no difference. The human mind is part of universal consciousness and therefore it can either latch on to its default states which are also uh, existing or it can latch on to the higher states of consciousness or it can latch on to one one day and the next day another one but all it does is go along with all the rest of all minds which is a great benefit to us because otherwise we would never learn meditation it would never happen because nobody could tell us what to do we could also not learn anything about insight because nobody would know what to say everybody would have their own insight now obviously the words which are being used the terminology is totally different depending upon which environment one comes from and which religion has colored or discolored one's understanding. But it always comes to the same thing. And the mystics of all religions have all had the same understanding. And they can all be found to be totally in agreement. So what we have here is the pathway of calm and insight and of course in this particular little uh, discourse there are no instructions on how to do it except be mindful, be concentrated and watch the in and out breath <coughs> that's the only instructions there are now obviously the in and out breath will eventually become so fine in the jhanas that it doesn't have any bearing on the matter anymore but until then the instructions here are to watch it. And some people do this quite automatically. They stay with the breath, even though the first factors of the jhanas have arisen, until it becomes so strong that the breath is no longer to be found, which is fine. It's a, it is another um, aid to real concentration. The investigation accompanied by concentration is then um, insight method. But I'd like to emphasize once more that is not enough. It is very strong and it can be very helpful. But if we only do it when we meditate, we will forget about it when we do other things. It's so easy to forget. So it is something that we should carry in mind at all times. And that again is a great help to equanimity. 
Because if everything is impermanent, what is there to worry about? What is there to hang on to? What is there to believe? What is there to argue? What is there to possess? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the less one possesses, including views and opinions, the less of a burden one has. If I have lots of things and I have to carry them, it's a very heavy thing. Sometimes I get to the airport and my luggage weighs 30 kilos. Don't laugh, you have to carry it always, I know. And it's terrible for everybody because there's so much stuff. And if I didn't have all that stuff, nobody would have to carry all this heaviness around. It would be much easier. It's the same with all the stuff we're carrying around. The less we have of all that, the happier we are and the easier it all is. So that is um, one of the things that we can remember in our daily lives that if we see impermanence, really see it again and again, we don't have to carry all these opinions and arguments and beliefs and ideas and hopes and plans and memories and wishes with us. They're only heavy. They're far heavier than 30 kilos. They're the heaviest thing there is. They bend the person down and make them easily depressed because they cannot be realized. And they end up in negativity. So this is the the very short discourse on the factors of enlightenment co-joined usually the factors of enlightenment are just enumerated not with concentration on the breath this is a one time only discourse where it's co-joined with that so it is an quite uh, interesting and possibly helpful to even allow oneself to practice like that. So, any questions? That would be the time now. Yes. Well, six times it refers to that it's a factor which is joined with the others. Fourth jhana. So the actually refer to the fourth jhana. Fourth, fourth, number four. Yeah, fourth, yeah. Mm. It could be construed to mean the third, but I doubt that very much. Because right concentration can only mean the fourth jhana and equanimity then being our ment- a mental emotional state. But it doesn't refer to, for example, all the eight jhanas, like you have to have to have a, a good grasp of the eight jhanas before it becomes a manufacturer of enlightenment. Mm, well, <laughs> that's also explained like this, that the arupa jhanas, number five, six, seven, eight, are extension of the fourth. Because very often the Buddha only speaks about four. 
and so it's explained that the other four are extensions of the fourth because you go to the fourth and from there you can go and he in the other sutta which we read he did say all eight yes and there's no reason not to do them none whatsoever every mind is part of universal consciousness and that all can all universal consciousness has the eight jhanas embedded in it Including you, song. <laughs> <laughs> Quite sure. <laughs> Anything else? Everything perfectly clear. Good. And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. And as you become aware of the in and out breath, feel yourself one with the wind outside. The movement of the clouds. the flight of the birds feel your own breath part of all that that breathes and moves or blows and changes outside wind clouds flying birds And then feeling yourself one with nature, 
all around, as far as the sky, embrace all of that with love. Let yourself, the breath, the wind, the love for all of it, become one. Think of any one person who would really like to be loved. And then feel yourself one with that person, the same breath. moving in and out, no difference. And as you feel yourself one with that person, embrace him or her with love. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. The same breath in and out, supporting life. Become one with that person and embrace him or her with love.
think of yourself as one with everyone in this room the same breath the same life support and then embrace everyone with love of your friends and companions in this life. Feel the oneness with them. Depending on the same breath. Embrace them all with your love. Think of people you know, whom you've met here and there. Recognize the sameness, depending on breath. Watch your own breath. Know that they depend on the same for life. Feeling one, embrace them with your love.
And now, watching your own breath, recognize that all human beings depend on that for life. Stretch your love, stretch your feelings out towards all of humanity, feeling one with all that breathes. Embrace all beings with your love. And again, go back to your own breath and recognize the movement of your own breath as the movement of the whole universe, the wind and the stars, the clouds, all of it, the whole universe. Moving. Feel yourself as all of it. Be one with the whole in love.
may beings everywhere have a feeling of oneness.